0: Let me start by asking you a question. How important is what you believe? To what degree do our beliefs really matter? To what degree do they impact our daily lives? Is what we believe about our world, about ourselves, about who we are really that important? Well, even help you think this through. Let me go to an unusual place. I'll go to a fictional story, a, a children's movie that many might be familiar with. You might be familiar with The Lion King. It's a story about a young uh, lion named Simba. Simba is the son of Mufasa, the king of the Pride Lands. At one point, Simba's uncle, Scar, kills Mufasa and then not only kills him, but then convinces Simba that he is responsible for his father's death. Overwhelmed by sorrow and also by guilt, Simba runs away, you know, certain that everyone will reject him, certain that he has forfeited his place as the rightful king. And then based on that false belief and that false guilt, he takes up a life of careless and meaningless existence with Timon and Pumbaa. And they, you know, um, you know they just, you know, nothing matters. You know, it doesn't, doesn't matter who could have cut mit- Matata. Mit- but what you've got to realize is that everything that he does in this period of life in the movie is defined by the belief that he has that you know he's guilty that he's killed his father even though his belief is totally based on a lie now later in the movie you have Rafiki, the you know the wise baboon you know who tries to confront him and get his attention tries to show him that he's he should he should living a lie that he tries to help him remind him of the truths that define him you know and he tells him you know no you know you forgot your father forgotten who you are your father is alive he says well here i want to show you and that leads us to this clip uh, where the where the movie picks up That's not my father. It's just my reflection. No Look hard. You see He lives in you So forgotten me look inside yourself Sima. you are more than what you have become you must take your place in the circle of life how can i go back i'm not who i used to be remember who you are you are my son If you know the story, Simba suddenly remembers who he is. He believes something different about himself, and as a result, he then leaves the life of meaninglessness that he had. He goes back to the Pride Lines. He fights Scar. He seeks to restore the you know, uh, uh, right balance to uh, you know, the Pride Rock. Suddenly, everything changes. Everything in his life changes. Everything in the whole story changes on what? On a belief. Beforehand, he believed one thing. His beliefs were all based on a lie, but they were real to him. It's what defined him, even though it was all a lie. And yet, suddenly something changed, and everything in his action changed. And you might be thinking, well, that's a kid's movie. What's that have to do with anything? Well, what we've got to realize is that it's based on a truth that we understand. What we believe shapes our lives. And we need to see that. We need to see how our beliefs shape our perspective on our life from everything to how we interpret the world to how we interpret other relationships and how we trust people, how we see people. You know, we're able to see people around us that, that we can see in their life that they, they have believed a lie. And we can look at that and see how that lie has been disruptive in their own life. And, but yet we can be blind to it ourselves. You know, I think even for those that have been around, you know, we're around the summer, you know, that I, that I shared, Cindy and I took some time off, and part of that time off is we went out to spend some time with a counselor. And part of that was to have, give somebody the right to say, okay, probe into our life and help us to see things that we can't see about ourselves. And one of the things, probably the primary thing that he really did was to probe into areas of, of lies, of things that had happened in our life that caused us to have wrong beliefs, that then caused us to have behaviors that, that were harmful. You know, so I think in my own life, okay, I've been betrayed in things in the past. You know, then therefore, because of that, then I'm not trusting of people. I fear that people will betray me again. And so therefore, I keep distance. And, you know, and, and I look at that and said, what's happening is that I believed lies. I need somebody else to shape. that's a lie. And here's how that's harmful. And, and here's God's truth. That's what any good counselor will do and a good biblical counselor that's what we're doing is we're helping you to say what are those lies how are those lies negatively impacting your life and then what is the biblical truth now let's get outside of psychology which is our relationships with each other and get into our relationship with god and when we look about that we have to say okay well if we can see that those lies are destructive in our relationship with each other how important is it that we have the right beliefs about god about who god is about who we are and how we relate to god Put another way, how important is right theology? How does it impact life? You know, I could go to a bunch of people just at random, and if I were to ask, I mean, how important is the right belief about God, about right theology? I think most people would, you know, kind of say, not important at all. In fact, when you hear people talk about, even many Christian uh, people that claim to be Christians, you know, they'll say something along the lines of, you know, but it doesn't really matter that much what you believe about God as long as you have sincere beliefs. You know, this idea of saying, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as it's real to you. Now, that's nonsense. I mean, the fact is that, again, we understand that about all these other areas of life, our relationships with each other. If I have the wrong beliefs about other persons, you know, of, that just can be destructive. It can destroy me. Why would it be any different in our relationship with God I think it's sad even sometimes churches will advertise I've seen churches that have advertised oh we don't have theology we want to focus on practical teaching in essence they're saying you know once you believe in God it really doesn't matter what you believe about God we want to focus in on the practical things my friends, you've got to realize that even here in the book of Ephesians, we're going to get to a lot of practical things in the later chapters. We're going to talk about marriage and about family and about relationships and about work and about all these different things. But Paul says before you get there, you have to understand that's all built on a right view of God and right theology. Our, our beliefs about God are vital. And that's what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 1. Now, we've been looking at the last three weeks and we've seen that he's been, have this incredible description and celebration of, of who we are in Christ, that we are adopted by God, that we are loved by God, we are blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. We have this new identity, and in this new identity, we've got to realize that, live up to it, because we have all these blessings that come with being a child of the king. Yeah. But after describing these incredible blessings that God gives to his children, Paul then ends this chapter with a long prayer and basically the heart of this prayer is saying now I pray that God would give you the ability to really believe everything that I've just said because this stuff is so wonderful you're going to struggle to believe it and if you believe it this is you know it's going to change your life in fact when you look at this what you've got to see is that what Paul is doing here is praying for what he believes is our greatest need We read the prayer a few minutes ago and and one of the things that's striking not only about this prayer but about all paul's prayers in the epistles as he prays for the people he's writing to is that he's writing and he's saying okay these are your greatest needs i mean you look at not only this you look at philippians 1 and colossians 1 and we're going to see in ephesians 3 later on and and in all these prayers he never prays for circumstances Now, what's kind of surprising about this is that you know from the letters themselves that all these people faced really overwhelming difficulties and and circumstances. You know, they lived in cities where where the religious environment was defined by a hostile environment. Why? Because they had these temples to these Roman gods. Politically, there was persecution and, 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 and hostility towards Christians. Uh, economically they lived in a culture that was defined by economic oppression and yet in spite of this never in the prayers does Paul come back and say you know I'm praying for you that you would have a more lenient governor that God would work on the Emperor's heart and and you know kind of give you freedom he doesn't ever pray that they would have success or you know that God would give them the things that they're lacking in now Paul knew that they needed those things But but his prayer wasn't for those things because what he realized is that as important as what they were, something was even more important, that we would have a spirit of wisdom and insight to see what is really true, the faith to believe those things. Look at what he says about our greatest need, that God would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, that he would work in our lives in such a way that he would enlighten the eyes of our heart. That doesn't mean that we're never to pray for our daily practical needs. Elsewhere, I'm in the Lord's Prayer, other places, we're told to pray for those things. But what we see in Paul's prayer is that Paul is convicted there's something even more important than that. Why? Think about it. If we have a right understanding of who God is, of who we are in relation to God, if we have a right understanding of these ideas, then no matter our circumstances, we will have the ability to interpret those circumstances in such a way that we will prosper and grow and, in a sense, be spiritually wealthy, regardless of the circumstances. But on the other hand, if we don't have that, if we don't have a right understanding of God and who He is and our relationship with Him, regardless of our circumstances, we could have everything we want and we won't interpret it properly. And as a result, we'll come out, we'll be weak and we'll be, in dis, you know, um, shallow. And, and even when then the circumstances go bad, we're left in despair. So he prays for what is even more important. Look at what he prays. Go to verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering in you my prayers, that the God of our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Now, here's what I want you to see. When he prays, he prays that we would grow in our knowledge of God, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, but it would be a knowledge in him or knowledge of him. What he prays here specifically is that we would have a knowledge that would be a knowledge where we know God, not just a knowledge that we would know about God. You see, I think a lot of times I ask in the beginning, well, how important is right theology? And a lot of times people, when they think theology, they think, well, that's right thoughts. That's right ideas about God. If I can recite the right things, if I can recite, well, there is one God and there is Jesus and he died on the cross for my sins and I know those things, then then I'm good. But what Paul is teaching here and teaches throughout all the Bible is that it doesn't necessarily just matter how much we know about God, but the real issue is how well we know God. See, the focus is on relational knowledge. The Bible's teaching about faith is something that is radically different than the way that Americans, we often think of it. So we often think of, of faith in terms of just knowledge. It's what we know. Um, but biblical faith is more than that. It's not just what we know, it's what we commit ourselves to because it's rooted in relationship. It's what I believe about who God is and how then I trust him. And if I have the knowledge of God that I know about him, but it's not then translated into a relationship with him, I don't have biblical faith. See, then we've got to look at that and we say, you know, but even if that knowledge of him, it still has to be rooted in a, in a correct knowledge about God. Because it's also true, at the same point, if I have the wrong ideas about God, that distorts my relationship. So in a sense, right relationship has to be rooted in truth, the truth that God has revealed about himself in the Bible. But because it's a relationship, it has to go beyond just that knowledge, and it has to be defined relationally. And put another way, I could say it this way, I can have the right theology about God without really knowing him. A book knowledge by itself, I don't know him, but I cannot really know him in an intimate relationship without also having the right beliefs about who God is. Let's think about this in human relationships. We kind of understand this. Let's say you got a new job, and you show up to a new job, and you find out that your boss is Michael Scott. That's his name, all right? Now, some people, you know the office, you know Michael Scott, And, and you look at this, and you assume that he's just like the Michael Scott in the TV show. You assume he's irresponsible, he's out of touch, he's an idiot. You know, you relate to him that way. Now, let's say that his name is Michael Scott, but he's nothing like the Michael Scott in the TV show. In reality, he's actually very smart, very responsible, has high expectations, high accountability. Now, let me ask you, how well will your relationship go with that new boss if you're relating to him like the fictional Michael Scott, when that's not, in reality, anything close to who he is? Probably not very Well, probably your job isn't going to go very well. Why? Because the fact is, is that as long as I'm relating to someone with false ideas, with who I think they are, expect them to be, instead of who they are, really never getting to know them. And therefore, I can't have a real relationship, and any relationship's probably going to be dysfunctional. Because the only way to have a real relationship is based on truth of who the person really is, not who I think that they are. So God calls us to have this relationship. It's based on truth, but it goes deeper. It's a relational truth. And when we have this relational truth, what we're gonna find out is it's a, it becomes a faith that's a living faith, a living belief in who God is, um, in God's truth. Look at verse 18, look at what he says here. Paul prays that we would have the eyes of your hearts enlightened. He doesn't just pray that, okay, I'm praying that your minds would be enlightened, that you would see something, that you would understand things but the eyes of your heart. Why does he say that? What is the heart? The heart is the emotions. The heart is the feelings. The heart is the, in sense, the sense, you know, the, 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 the core of our belief system. And what he's saying is, is, although there is truth, I've got to see the truth before I can believe it. He's saying, I hope that you not only have the eye, your, you know, your mind enlightened, but the eyes of your heart, that you have something that it changes what you really believe. And and so what he's calling us to is here is something not just to have a knowledge, but to challenging us to, to believe what we know, which is different. The fact is, a lot of times I can know something is true, and I really don't believe it in my heart. And what's the demonstration of that? You know, I can look at that and say, man, I really know I'm gonna feel better, I'm gonna be happier, I'm gonna be healthier if I exercise on a regular basis, but then if I never go exercise, the fact is I know that, but I really don't believe it because if I believed I would be happier exercising regularly, I would actually do the thing that I say is important. So we all struggle with this. Let's take, for example, we know that God created us, we know that God has designed us, we know that God knows better than us what is best for us. We know that God loves us and is committed to our well-being. And so therefore, I believe that. Therefore, I would believe that God's commandments are an expression of his perfect knowledge of us and our need, his perfect love for our well-being. So then why do I struggle with commandments? Why do I struggle and break his commandments? Why do I do things that I know that God says are wrong? You know why? Because I don't really believe the things that I say I believe. Because if I really believe that this is in my well-being, I would do it but at the moment of temptation I really don't believe it and I demonstrate it by my action. Or we know that God is totally sovereign over everything that happens, not only in my life but in the world, that God is totally in control and we know that he promises that nothing will happen to us except that which he can use for good. Now if I really know that to be true, why would I worry about anything? If God was really in charge, if God was really trustworthy, You see, I'm going to sit there and I'm going to be relaxed, so why do I worry? Because I really don't believe what I know to be true. See, when we look at this, we've got to understand that the truth that God calls us to isn't just theoretical or theological knowledge, but the truth that he always calls us to apply to our everyday life. That's what belief means, especially in the context of relationship. Look at verse 17. Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Now again, it's knowledge of him, relational knowledge, but two things, spirit of wisdom, spirit of revelation. Let's start with the second one, spirit of revelation. What is that? Revelation is God's revealing of himself and his truth through his word, the Bible. Now on one hand, that sounds simple and straightforward. On the other hand, it goes totally against the prevailing thought and value of our day. Why, because when people talk about religion or philosophy in our time and our culture, the idea is that we should develop thoughts about God based on speculation rather than revelation. So here people talk about God, and it's like, we're sitting there, well, what do you think God is like? And people will say something, well, you know, basically, the God that I'm comfortable with, I've always envisioned God this way. So what happens is we start to define God based on our speculation, our opinions, our comfort level. That's why we have such confusion about God in our world today, because everyone has their own idea about God that we create. But the Bible says, no, God has revealed himself. Revelation is where God tells us who he is. He's done that through his word. God has literally spoken into human." Uh, history and so a spirit of revelation acknowledges that there is a truth outside of us and the goal isn't for me to try to figure out my own ideas about God but to go outside of myself and to go to God's Word and say, God what do you say and I want to try to align my thinking with you so first of all not only you know I, I want to have a spirit of revelation that finds truth outside of myself but also on top of this a spirit of wisdom now what is wisdom Wisdom is basically, more than anything else, it's the practical application of knowledge. So I can have knowledge. Wisdom is to say, okay, this is what it looks like in life. It's learning to apply and believe these truths about God and, and apply it to the details of life. So it's seeing how the truth about God impacts our relationships with other people, how it impacts our work ethic, how it impacts our use of money, how it impacts the choices that we make in our entertainment. See, God is pursuing intimacy and relationship with us passionately, and he wants us to be involved. He wants to be involved in all the areas of our life, and a true relationship does this. We understand that again. Okay, let's go outside of the spiritual, go to the physical. Let's say, let's say I have somebody that comes up to me, and they say, well, I'm, you know, I'm getting married. I'm excited about getting married. And, and well, what's, you know, well, oh, man, we're, you know, I love her dearly Two become one. We're gonna become one. It's gonna be awesome. And then you start listening a little bit more. So okay, why do you want to get married? Well, you know, I really want to have someone to cook and clean for me. Uh, mom picked me out of the house and so I need somebody to do her job. And, uh, you know, and plus that, you know, I'm kind of looking forward to the sexual side of that and somebody to keep the bed warm. And, and, and then i say, well, how's your life going to change? Oh, I don't expect it to change that much. I mean, other than having that person to take care of me. I mean, my schedule's going to be the same. I'll go out with friends, just the same. Financially, it'll be nice to have someone pay half of the rent. Uh, But beyond that, it's my money. I get to do whatever I want, I do with, and I don't expect my life to change. What do you call that guy? He's a fool. He's foolish. Why? Because he lacks wisdom. He says, I love this woman. I want the two of us to be one. That's a theory that he has no idea how to actually apply to real life. He's foolish because he lacks the wisdom to actually live out those, you know, the principles that he claims to believe. And it's going to be a disaster until he figures it out now if we understand that in our relationship humanly why would we think it's any different in our relationship with god god wants this relationship with us and as much as i make this lifelong commitment to my wife and my commitment to god is even more so and and not only that god is my designer i mean the fact is that i can get in an argument with my wife and i think at times i know what's best for her she knows what's best for me i can tell her here's what's best for you but i've been wrong once or twice uh, no, there was a third time. I forgot about that, you know, but, you know, no, but I've been wrong, period. You know, I, I'm wrong. Now, here I have this relationship with God. He is the creator. He's the designer. He's never wrong. And yet, why would I be any, if, if I don't let him speak into and his truth speak into every aspect of my life, I'm even more foolish than that guy that thinks life isn't going to change when he gets married. See, the challenge that we have in this is realizing that there's a a gap between our theology and our functional beliefs. You know, there's a gap between what I say I know about God, what I say I believe, and what I, in reality, believe. And what I, in reality, believe is always made evident because in my actions, my actions always reveal my functional belief. Again, let's think about this as an example. I know that God is my all-knowing, all-loving Father and that his plans are best for me but then I'm tempted by something that I know clearly is wrong biblically. You know, as a teen you're tempted to get in a sexual relationship with your boyfriend and a girl, or a girlfriend. Uh, you know, you're, as an adult we're tempted to be able to compromise and, and methods and business and be dishonest to get ahead or whatever it would be. I know it's wrong and then suddenly I go ahead and give in to that temptation. And I might have reasons that I justify it, but ultimately it shows that I don't believe the theology that I say that I believe. See it reveals that at the moment of temptation I believe the promises of the temptation more than I believe the truth of God. If I really believe that God knew best and had his best plan for me, then I would do what's in my best interest, but I don't believe that. That's the only reason that I give to, that I choose sin. The same thing happens in times of crisis. I mean, we can all relate to this. Okay, I know that God is loving. I know he's in charge of the details of my life. But suddenly we face a crisis and we cry out, God, where are you? And I pray and, 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 and I don't feel God's answer. I don't see his purpose. It doesn't make sense to me. And, and suddenly I'm questioning him. God, are you here? You know, what are you doing? Why aren't you answering my prayer? And, and I'm struggling and I'm thinking of walking away. And it, what it shows is that deep down, when push comes to shove, There's a gap between what I know to be true and what I really believe in practice because the reason that I struggle is because, because I don't believe it. Now, I'm not saying that to put guilt on anyone because we all struggle with that. The Bible talks about that. And nor should we try to fake it and somehow, man, I get more faith. No, I can't do that. But what I need to realize is that's my deepest need. That's the need that's beneath all the other issues that I have. And that's why Paul calls us, he says, I'm praying for you that God would give you this, this spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. And if you understand these truths, they'll change your life. Now, what are these truths, that he, these life-changing truths specifically that he calls us to pray? Look, look, he gives us three. Verse 18, we see the first, that we'd have the hearts of our, our eyes of our heart enlightened, specifically that you would know the hope to which he has called you. He's called us to live in, the, in a sense in the right hope. Now the idea of hope is throughout the Bible. We um, probably could even talk about it more because it's so vital. One of the reasons we struggle talking about it is the meaning of the word hope, the way we use it is very different than the word that the Bible uses. When we talk about hope, we talk about a desire that we have that may or may not be rooted in any sense of reality. So it's Super Bowl Sunday. I'm a lifelong Cleveland Browns fan. I hope that sometime in my lifetime, the Cleveland Browns win a Super Bowl. I mean, their last championship was the week before I was born. So I, you know, I hope in my lifetime they win a Super Bowl. I hope that. Now, that's a desire that, unfortunately, I think is probably not at all rooted in any sense of reality. I don't see that <laughs> happening, you know. And now, that's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is the promise of something that is guaranteed in the future, but we hope for it because we've not yet fully realized it. So it's promise of eternity in heaven. It's promise of God's ultimate reward. It's promise of God's glory in our lives. You want the best, I think the best example of biblical hope is is a woman who's eight months pregnant. You know, you don't go to her and you say, oh, what's happened? Well, I'm not sure what's really happened. I'm kind of hoping it's a baby, but I'm not sure what's going to pop out, you know, in a couple weeks. No, you know, you know, you know what it is. You know it's a child. And because you know that, you're willing to, pre- why, why is it that women are willing? I look at my wife and say, why, you know, you went through pregnancy again. You want to do that again? You know, once, you know. Why does she do that? Because she knows what is at the other side. And there is a hope that is so glorious that it will drive her through the difficulty, the unpleasantness of a pregnancy, even after she had been through it one time before. That's what we have, our hope of Christ. We have this hope in Christ that's so glorious that it drives us through the difficulties of life. Not only do we have this hope in Christ, the second one, look at verse 18, that we would know the hope that we've called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What he's saying is the second great truth is we need to learn to live with the right view of yourself. Now, you say, I don't see that there. I don't see, you know, you know what's it have to do with the riches of the glorious inheritance? And I want to tell you, when I first read that verse, the first thing that I see is probably what you see, that we almost read it and saying, well, he's teaching us that we need to see the riches of our glorious inheritance in Christ. And, well, that's what the hope is. It's kind of that same idea. Is it just reaffirming that same idea? I saw that when I read it because that's what I expect to see, but that's not what's here. That's not what he says. Let's look at it again. What I expected is the riches of our glorious inheritance, but it doesn't say that. It's not what are our. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Not our inheritance, God's inheritance. Here's what I want you to realize. I want you to realize the riches that God is excited about. And what are the riches that God is excited about? His inheritance. What is the thing that that, that gets him through the moon in a sense? The glorious, his rich, glorious inheritance in the saints. Do you know what his riches are? Do you know what his inheritance are? Do you know what drive, you know, drives him, in a sense, just you know, with passion, what he loves more than anything else? You. You are his inheritance. You are his riches. That's, that's his treasure. You are loved and treasured by the almighty God, the most powerful being in the universe. And oftentimes we hide things because we're afraid, well, if somebody knew, you know, they wouldn't love me, they wouldn't accept me. God knows everything about you. God knows your every thought. He knows your every failure. He knows every detail of your life, all the things that you hide that would cause you to think, I can't really be accepted. He knows that. In his perfect knowledge of who you are, he loves you perfectly and says, you are my glorious inheritance. My friend, that's what he's telling you. Maybe some people here today, you came here today and God brought you here because he wants you to hear that. You are precious to him. You are his treasure. You know, you might be that person up on the balcony. You might be that person kind kind of, you know, sitting down and squirching down in your seat. That person that's at home and you're feeling uncomfortable with what I'm saying because it's hard to hear that we're that love, because we think that if we're gonna be that love, someone's gonna get that close, they're gonna see us and reject us, but God knows you that well, and he loves you, you're that precious, and do you understand if you really believe this, how this will change your life? If you really believe the most powerful, all-knowing person being in the universe loved you, and somebody criticizes you, it's gonna be like, yeah, I don't care what you say, do you know what God says about me? Do You understand how that gives you confidence, how that gives you hope, it changes your life. And this is so great. The challenge is can we really believe it? And the third life-changing truth, that Paul says, he says, I want you to understand the power that's at your disposal. Look at what he says, you know, verses 19. He prays that your eyes or your heart would be enlightened concerning what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. He's saying, if you wanna understand the power that you have, you look at it and you say, but you don't understand, I'm struggling with this. You don't understand, I've had this temptation. You don't understand, I'm overwhelmed by this opposition. I'm overwhelmed, and he says, okay, The power that God showed when he raised Jesus from the dead, that life-changing power, that's the power that God's working in your life. And there may be dead things in your life, but this is resurrection power, and he wants to accomplish that resurrection power. You don't know what I'm facing. You don't know what's going on. You don't know how great this is. Okay, well, let's continue. What is the nature of that power? He seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. It's not the way that he accomplished it, but he's now in charge of all things in the here and now, far above all rule and authority, power, dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, gave him head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Okay, so what is it that's gonna overwhelm that? Do you understand your love? Do you understand the power of God that you have? Do you understand the courage that should, that should, should give us? Do you understand if we, as Christians, we shouldn't ever live defeated? The only, You know why we live defeated? Is we struggle to believe what is ours. We've bought the lie, and we're living the meaningless life of, you know, Pumba Timon, and out there because we have bought the lie, and we don't know who we are. Now, you might be thinking, man, it's time to go and he's just getting to point three. Man, (laughs) this is gonna be a long Sunday. Point three is gonna go really quick. Uh, Simply this, point three is really just application. It's saying, okay, what are the ideas that he's saying here? What's this look like in life? Because what Paul's been talking about is prayer. Okay, it's neat to see that he prayed for us, but so what, what do I do? do? What do I do in my life? You know, the primary application is simply this. This is how we have to pray for ourselves. It's not only Paul saying, okay, you know, pray for, you know, I'm praying for you, but this is how we need to pray for ourselves. Yeah, pray for other people as well. That's a good thing to do. But when we think about our own prayer life, how many of us are spending most of our time talking about circumstances? You know, I've got these material needs, I've got the circumstances, I've got this problem. And again, those are good things to pray for, but that shouldn't be all of it because what we're doing is we're praying about secondary things. I can have all those things and if I don't have this, my ability to interpret them is messed up. If, if I'm still in the midst of struggle and I have this, it will transform my ability to interpret what's happening. I will live in victory. So more than anything else, we need our hearts enlightened by these truths. That means, okay, pray this way. And what's that mean? Well, first of all, we need to acknowledge and admit our need. See, when we struggle with temptation, when we struggle with fear, when we struggle being controlled by what other people think of us, when we struggle with anything in life, what we need to realize, it's all being driven ultimately by what we believe. And oftentimes we think that what we need to do is try harder. Just try harder, just pull it up, just try to beat the, you know, just, just do. And what the Bible's saying is no, it's not that. Or we don't need to just pray for changed circumstances. We, what we need to realize is that all of this is ultimately driven by wrong thinking. We're leaving, living the empty, meaningless lives because we're believing the wrong things about ourselves. And in a sense, we need to come to God, pray to Him, recognizing that from the heavens that He's speaking down to us and saying, you are more than you have become. You forgot who you are. You are a child of the King. Now go and live like who you are. That's your true identity. Now why do we struggle? I might know that, but then why do I struggle? Because there's this gap between my theology and my practical beliefs, but I have to see that. I have to acknowledge that's the problem because otherwise I spend all my time trying to fix the wrong thing by my own effort. So I need to admit, I need to see that's the need and then I need to pray that God would give me wisdom and revelation in the context of relationship. Starting with revelation, God help me to read. That's why we need to spend time in the Bible. God help me to see the truth. Help me to see the, you know, the truth of what you say and to identify the lie. And God, not only to have the truth of theology, but have the ability to know how to apply this in in real life, that it's in the context of relationship, that it's not just that I have right theology, but that I have the right practice and application of those truths to the way that I live. And remember, in the midst of this all, that it's all about relationship, and it's all about a relationship defined by grace. You know, I love in this prayer, it's not that, you know, that he says, try harder, think this, you're believing, it's never beating us up. It's God saying, what do we do? We admit our need and we come and we say, God, give me, I need this desperately. And we need to realize that it's not about studying more, or trying harder, and, but it's recognizing our need and then coming to God and saying, God, I agree with you, this is the need and I need you to give me what I lack. That's what the gospel is all about. It's about acknowledging the need and asking God to give us what we don't have. And more than anything else, we need him to give us Truth. Why? Because when we have truth, what happens is that he renews our mind, and, and what happens when he renews our mind, we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. That if I believe different things, I will be a different person. And why do I struggle? Why do I live like the pulper? Because I believe the lie. And I can be caught up in a lie, and, and because it's real to me, suddenly that's my reality. And and God says, "No, I want not only expose that, but I want to speak the truth into your life. Because when you understand that truth, see that truth is going to is going to is, is going to redefine not only what you think, but as it changes how you think, it will changes how you interpret. It will change the way that you live. You'll be transformed by that renewing of your mind, my friends. I, I this is a process. None of us are there." but I hope that I'm more along that path now than I was a year ago, and and I hope that I will be more along that path a year from now than I am now. But it means this is the way that I need to pray. This is the need that I need to see in myself, and I need to come and ask God to give me that which I don't have, and if I do, he will. And he'll change me, transform me, and you by the renewing of our mind.